the book of Romans, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I'll read just two verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, our longing is that every time we come to your word, we would come as those who are anticipating a grand and glorious meal. Whether it is at home and private or with our families, or here in your presence with the covenant people of God. Make us a people ready to eat and feast upon your word of life. That you would take away the idols from our eyes, our hands, our hearts. That you might cause us to care less about the opinions and words of the world. But to be shameless as it relates to the opinions of those who care not for your glory, who know nothing of your love, who stand in opposition to the work of your kingdom. Oh Lord, help us then to love our neighbor as those who have been set free by the gospel that brings life and puts an end to shame. This we ask in your name. Amen. So we sang it just a moment ago from Psalm 80. I'll read from the psalm uh, as it is listed in our Psalter hymnal. Verse 4. A strife you have made us to neighbors around, our foes in their laughter and scoffing abound. O Lord, God of hosts, in your mercy restore And we shall be saved when your face shines once more. There is much of the theme of the war between good and evil in the scriptures. It is a war. It is a war that is fought between the principalities and powers of the air. It is a war that Paul elsewhere says that we are to be armed for. We are to put on the armor pieces that belong to the work of the Spirit's work in our life. We are to be armed with the word that brings about the salvation of the nations, the combating of untruth with truth. And if you've ever spent any time in the art of apologetics or evangelism, you have run into those who not only disagree as to the conclusions of Scripture very plain and Ordinary conclusions like all men are sinners and stand before God. That gospel will preach, but you will not always get an amen. Sometimes you will get the stopping up of ears, the closing of eyes, the shrieking in horror, the truth of it. Paul, in light of this, 
in light of the group that he left, of the religious elites in his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, confessed in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that rescued him from that life of futility, he was no longer ashamed of that gospel. It is this shamelessness that I want to speak of this morning and why you and I should be shameless in the right direction as it relates to one who bears in our bodies the truth of God that brings about salvation. And so as it relates to being unashamed, these two points, a people imprisoned to shame, a people imprisoned to shame, and then secondly, a gospel that takes away our shame. Let's look at the first point, a people imprisoned to shame. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is certainly not one of our contemporaries, but I guess contemporary enough if you think of the whole life of the church, stated many decades ago, in this or if in this modern sophisticated age, you were so anxious to be intellectually respectable that you soft-pedal some aspects of what you believe, then you are not confessing that Jesus is Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones is responding to the tendency of Christians when they go forth with the truth of God's word. A little bit of pushback means they sort of move away from that distinct, powerful truth of God's word. Now, what Paul faced is what Lloyd-Jones was referring to, and it is not unlike the persecution that the church in every generation has endured, whether it was Noah in the building of the ark or Abraham or David, Samuel before him, the apostles, the prophets, to proclaim God's revelation. His word revealed, as we see in verse 17, the righteousness of God revealed is to be at enmity with the world. And this pushback is not from a place of academic or spiritual neutrality. No, all pushback to the gospel is it must be, by necessity, satanic in its origin and effort. Because its goal is two things. And those things are connected. To thwart the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, thereby thwarting the bringing in of the harvest of sinners into the household of faith. And so Satan's And the demons' great interest is to stop the sound of preaching. It is to stop the preaching of the word of God. And this happens either by promoting silence through persecution, by closing the doors of the church, by putting pastors in prison so that the word may no longer be preached. And it also happens by subversion, which is liberal theology. That there are many who stand in pulpits even today and they do not talk about the way who is Christ but the way of Christ. And those are two different things and we'll get to that in a moment. Liberal theology is an embracing of righteousness apart from the justifying work of Christ. Paul experienced that pushback. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts, you will see that much of the second half of the book of Acts is Paul constantly defending himself himself in the courts of Rome, later to be beheaded on the butcher's block. 
And that is why Paul confessed, I may be bound with chains, but the word of God is not bound. Which informs the fearless, shameless nature of Paul. The word of God is not bound. Now Paul, in so many words, is saying to the work of Satan and those who seek to silence the preaching of the word of God, bring it. In fact, as I was looking at this text and I was thinking about the idea of what it means to not be ashamed, I couldn't help but think of the story of David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 41, we read, And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine, that is Goliath, looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David promptly ran away. Wait. No. What does David do? He hides behind liberal theology. No. Maybe there's room for Philistine gods in this Judeo. No. What does David say? Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee. I will take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." Not many things make me want to cry, but that kind of makes me well up with tears like, let's get it done. Let's go. As is often said. <laughs> and so David proceeds with his pitiful little sling, like a dog, just a little weapon, to stun Goliath with a rock right to the temple. And then he goes over to Goliath, and with the very sword he wielded, what does he do? Takes his head off. And he holds the head aloft. <laughs> and the Philistines fled. Now, why did have Paul have a courageous heart? Because in the paper-rock-scissors battle, that is, a spear which the head of which was eight pounds. Does eight-pound spear beat sling? Yes. <laughs> Does giant sword that David could not hope to wield in battle beat sling and stone? Yes, but we are not playing by the rules that the world thinks apply to the battle of religious systems. David and also Paul and all who stood for the name of Christ Jesus had a courageous heart because he knew who the battle belonged to. Or in the words of Paul here, 
He knew the one who died to raise dead men from their trespasses and sins. And the same one that gave David victory over Goliath is the same one who had victory over the grave. That stone was put there in the forehead of Goliath by none other than Jesus Christ. As it were. God gave David the victory. And so once you join the board, you are a target. And for all who bear the name of Christ, in whom the Spirit resides, whether you know it or not, Satan and his demons know it, and they're going to come after you. And the way in which they will endeavor to inhibit your testimony, one of the ways is by causing you to feel shame that you are armed with a sling when the world is armed with a sword. And the swords of the world are what? Well, evolutionary theory. Standpoint epistemology. What kind of weak religion is yours? You believe in a dead man on a cross. Actually, I don't believe in a dead man on a cross anymore. I believe in a triumphant resurrected Messiah who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, who died once and is no longer dead. So let's at least... Let's at least nuance that point. Now, Paul was dangerous then. Not because he was Paul, for it is easy for us, right? To think of these great men and women of the faith as heroes in whom there was no frailty. If I could only be like Paul, then I would be a mighty figure in the church. The word that Paul had is the same word that you have. The same spirit that Paul had. He was armed with the same weapon, the same gospel as you and I are armed with. And what is it? It is the gospel of Christ that brings about salvation for everyone who believes it. So no matter what pushback there is, the world is wholly not up to the task of bringing low, of frustrating the work of the church through the wielding of the sword of the Spirit. Now, what we must say is this, that this potential for shame is ultimately the friction that is caused by two families set apart from one another. You have the family of the seed of the woman, the seed of Christ, and you have the family of the seed of the serpent, who is Satan. And the gospel... The truth of God's word, his righteous record, his own revelation of righteousness revealed is the thing that separates us in this way. The gospel promises that though we are sinners, we are clothed, we are covered by the worthy sacrifice of another. And that one is Christ Jesus, only Christ. The gospel or false gospel of every other religion is this. You can clothe yourself. So whether it is secular hedonism or Islam or Judaism or any other religion, all of those religions look like Christianity, but they all express one distinct difference. One is of the Tower of Babel, man endeavoring to reach God by his own imagination and ingenuity. The other is the tower that Jacob saw where God comes down to man and brings us to where he is. One cannot save, the other can. 
Christianity is a religion built upon and embracing a proclamation that God the Creator came down to redeem us, thus recreating us. And this is how it sets us apart. In fact, this being set apart is part of the plan. That is why when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, I will set enmity between you and the devil. The enmity is God's promise. And the enmity is the result that God has actually promised to reconcile some. And you have felt that enmity, I'm sure. Some of you may feel it in your own family when you do not share the same religious system. That at the top of Christianity is Christ the Lord. And at the top of every other religious system is, well, whatever I can come up with. Allah is a fairy tale. He's a demon. He's a false god. And whatever god Jews worship is not the god of the Bible. Because he is not the triune Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who sent his son to die for our sins. And so though we may have some things in common, there is still enmity between those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who do not. Now lastly, under this point of the shame that men are prisoned to in their own sins... A people in prison to shame is this point. We need to be aware of the kind of shame or the taunts and the jeers that we will face. Now, Satan hates those who bear God's glorious image. He hates them. And he's hated them from the beginning. And he seeks to thwart and destroy anything good in the world. If it's green, he wants to level it. He wants to burn it. If it's innocent... He wants to deceive and destroy it. He could not abide our first parents living in the garden in peace with their maker. And so he sought to tempt and destroy them. And where Adam failed, Christ was victorious. Adam was tempted and failed. Christ was tempted and victorious in the wilderness. He was tempted again in the garden of Gethsemane. And he was victorious. And though Christ need not die, and could not die, he gave up his life so that you and I could live. That is the gospel. And as much as Satan hates this, he then strives to promote among men a doctrine of demons, which is not peace and reconciliation, and the path to joy and happiness and satisfaction only through the way of the cross, but what? Rebellion. Is this not what Satan offered Christ? I will give you everything the Father promised, but in my way. And so even now you have liberal theologians who say Christ was not promised an empire. Then why in the world did Satan make that offer? And why was it appealing and it had to be rebuked by the word of God? It wasn't because Christ was saying, oh, I don't get an empire. It was what? The way to the empire is through the shame of the cross. And even today we are being told as a church, the world doesn't belong to us. 
And yet we are promised time and again in scriptures that the inheritance that awaits the saints is the world. Now that will, of course, not be fully realized. And praise God until we are sinless and made ready to receive it as mature sons and daughters of God. But if we do not understand the spirit of this age, then we will fall prey not to not just bold-faced tactics that we see coming a mile away, but the subverting destructive force of what we might just call liberal theology. And every age has had to struggle with it. A kind of faux sophistication that is rooted in an overconfidence of man's capacity to know what is true without paying homage to God. One of those ways is a rejection of God's sovereign administration of his will in the revelation of wrath. How can a good God dot, dot, dot? Do you know what I mean? Well, what about the problem of evil? These kinds of questions in apologetics, in a study of apologetics, can help prepare you for an answer. What it cannot do, though, is what? Change the minds of the people whose hearts are wicked. In fact, what has happened in the fall is the competing confession, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now what is that mantra? Man is the measure of all things. And so what we have are two false gospels that lead to two systems. One that honors God and the other that does not. We are living in an age and a moment where the God of this secular humanistic system has shown himself, or really probably better put herself, to be an unforgiving, callous goddess who destroys instead of forgives. Have you ever seen someone successfully navigate an apology tour on social media? Have you ever seen it? There is no forgiveness. Why? Because there's no redeemer. Because it is the democratization of redemption. And there is no appeasing the bloodthirst of those whose sins have not been paid for. And so liberal culture of Christianity's elites, this is what they say, follow the way of Jesus. Now you may say, that sounds pretty good. Except the problem with the follow the way of Jesus is, it isn't follow Christ who is the way. That is, seek salvation in the name of Christ, but you need to live like Christ. A humble servant who came to serve, who we can mold after whatever image, whatever social, experimental, justice kind of um, thing we are a part of or desire to see manifested around us. They say, I'm a Jesus follower. And in the modern social structures of online media, that really means nothing. But what they do not confess is that Christ is the only way out of hell, out of misery, out of darkness and death. It is what Machen warned us of in Christianity liberalism, liberal theology. So don't be fooled. Do not be fooled by these who are in many respects more dangerous than outspoken atheists. 
You see, the plays that can often be run are the plays that are run against Orthodox Christians who say there is but one way to the Father. Rather, you've been called into a war for the souls of men. And the fact of the matter is this. You live among a people because they are imprisoned to shame. Will beg, borrow, and steal. They will do anything within their power to be alleviated by that shame except what? Believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. Shame is inevitable. It is inescapable. Unless, unless you are freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second point, the gospel that takes away our shame. There are two primary ways in which the gospel takes away our shame. First, and most importantly, it relieves the shame of our own sin. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Immediately upon the occasion of their sinning, our first parents felt what? Liberty. We did it. We are out from underneath the tyrannical thumb of God. We need God no longer, right? Just like Kant says. Or Nietzsche. God is dead. Let's, let's be free. No, what immediately happened? They felt the shame of their rebellion. And then God comes to meet with them and to dwell with them and to enjoy the cool of the day with them. And they run and they cover themselves with plant matter. And he asks them the question, when you heard my voice, why did you run? And what was the answer? Because we felt shame. Where did that come from? You don't need to teach your kids shame. Parents, how many have come into a young child's room and they're doing the thing they know they should not be doing and you walk in the door and... It may not even be something you've talked about. It is testimony of the law of God written in our hearts. Adam and Eve knew they were not supposed to eat of that tree. And from that time... What men have sought to do apart from the righteous covering of God is to beg, borrow, and steal whatever kind of favor they think they can get from whatever God they can imagine in order to cover the nakedness and shame that is inescapable that Paul talks about in verses 18 and 19. The wrath of God is revealed. It is not just the gospel that is revealed. His wrath is clear. And so everyone you walk among who has not had their sin dealt with in a satisfactory measure by Christ and his blood shed for them is ashamed of themselves and what they are and what they do and why they cannot quit. And they build all manner of towers And lives and philosophical and ethical systems that once they're built cannot withstand the weight of their shame. And what do people like that do? When they see the kinds of people who are free. 
They hate them and despise them and seek to tear down everything good that is built, not only because they are under the power of the evil one, but because the righteous joy of the saints is a constant reminder of their own misery and shame. But what does the gospel do? It is the only solution to the shame that we feel as sinners. It is the revelation unto salvation. And the reason why Paul is not ashamed of that gospel is not only because he has been set free, but because he knows that that balm That glorious message of hope and salvation is what makes of enemies brothers and sisters. It's the only way to be reconciled to one another. And not just conceptually, we all believe the gospel, but what? What is the only thing that reconciles us to one another? It is that reminder that apart from the gospel... I'm a wretch. Who am I? It brings about humility, teachability, a despisal of one's own self-confidence to bring about that thing that we hope will save us. Which is why we say, as it relates to a person coming to salvation... It always begins and is instigated by an acknowledgement of our own unworthiness and shame through our sin. The law brings us to the foot of the cross and we look at Christ and we don't say, a bunch of Jews killed this guy. What do we say? He's hanging there because of my sin. I put him there. He died for me. And we own his death and reconciling work. And that is why when Pilgrim comes to the foot of the cross, the assurance of his salvation isn't how progress was made in his life. His assurance, which is what's happening at the cross, that's not the moment of his conversion. It's the moment of his assurance. He comes to the cross and his weight falls off. And you know where it goes, allegorically speaking? It rolls all the way to the tomb. And it gets swallowed up there. It's a beautiful picture of our coming to grips with the only infallible grounds of our assurance. And once that has happened, you go, I can run now. I can walk. I'm free. That's the gospel. And not only the shame of our own sin, but it frees us from the shame of the wicked. How then can we, having been set free... From sin and death, allow ourselves to be imprisoned to the opinions and actions of men. For if we have been set free, we are free indeed. You simply ought not be interested in the opinions of wicked worldly men. In comfort and the offerings of peace that are made if it requires a compromise with Christ. Paul knew what that life was like. And he had no interest of going back there again. It sets us free from the opinions of wicked men. 
Because what we learn is that the shame of men is a far easier burden to bear than the shame of God. The shame of men is by contrast nothing compared to the shame we feel before God if we are still in our sins. And so in this world with devils filled, shame is the weapon they use to try to get you to compromise. And I am saying to you, Paul is saying, the Lord is saying to you, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Your shame has been dealt with. It has been taken away. And the place where we learn this better than any other is the worship of God in his presence. In fact, if you want to, turn to Psalm 40 with me. Psalm 40 speaks of the courage and confidence that the Christian has. David writes, beginning in verse 4, Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, or who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you do not require. Then I said, behold, I come and the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Here is the result of being found in the sanctuary of God, of moving through the liturgy of worship, of recounting the glory and beauty of God, of the sacrifice that brings about reconciliation, I, verse 9, have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I did not, or I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know yourself. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. What eradicates shame which leads to silence? How many of you were manipulated by this train of thought? If you gather to worship in 2020, you don't love your neighbor. You remember that train of thought? What tactic is that? other than bad exegesis. It is ex, it's exegesis that leads to what? Shame. According to what law? Not God's law. The law of those who did not wish to be counted irrelevant, irrelevant by those who were of the approved class of people who were coming up with whatever laws they wanted. And there were many Christians that said, okay, okay, all right. I cannot ever be perceived as someone who does not love their neighbor. And then you have David saying to Goliath, I'm going to cut your head off. Well, that's very unloving, David. Now, I'm not saying (laughs) that we fight now with the weapons of this world, even the way David did. But what I am saying is this. If we are shamed into avoiding that place 
where God makes us strong and brave and courageous and move to proclaim, we will never, ever have the courage to be unashamed. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, you need to know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In fact, one of the great motivations for why we should bear shame shamelessly is because it makes us more like Christ. It is that unifying exercise of discipleship where we, in our body and in our spirit, take upon ourselves the mission of the Redeemer. But why then do we do this? So that the gospel might go forth in power. Because the gospel must be said. It must be proclaimed. And certainly it is a fight. It is a fight for the sake of those lost in darkness. It is a fight for the brothers and sisters that will be born from whatever faithful labor are done. In fact, Chesterton writes of the fight. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Now, taking that and adapting it, we fight because we understand that through the proclamation of the gospel, we're not actually waging war. We're waging, as I've said from the pulpit before, peace. There will be those who stand against the church And there will be nothing that we can do about that because there will be enemies. But the reason we go out armed with the gospel is not only to proclaim and vindicate the truth of Christ's lordship, but it is to go after those who are still lost in darkness. And so, being armed with the gospel, let's sharpen our blades, let's identify the high places, let us not be ashamed. Let us get busy welcoming, proclaiming, toppling, tearing down, and just generally making a ruckus with the gospel that brings salvation, that brings freedom. May we not be ashamed. Let's pray. Oh, Lord.